Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, wondering about the change at Ancestry.com, telling you what is the largest DNA segment you share with the match. Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll talk to DNA specialist Kitty Cooper about what she thinks about it. Then Kitty will kick off a new feature where we talk to the experts about their favorite finds and how they made them happen. That's this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover. Gather. Connect, a presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Hello, genies, and welcome to another spine-tingling edition of Extreme Genes, America's family history show, and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth, on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. Well, we got a lot to talk about today. Kitty Cooper is going to be on the show today. She is a DNA specialist out of California, and we're going to talk about Ancestry.com now showing you the longest length DNA segment you have in common with one of your matches as you try to figure out your family tree. What does that mean? Why does it matter? She's going to explain that. And then we're going to start a new segment we're going to be doing for some time called Ask the Experts their greatest finds on their own family, what they found and how they found it. So Kitty's going to fill us in on that. Hey, if you haven't signed up for our weekly Genie newsletter yet, you can do so at ExtremeGenes.com. We'll give you links to stories that you will appreciate as a genealogist. Also links to current and past shows and a blog from me each week. Right now, it's time to head out to Stoughton, Massachusetts, and David Allen Lambert, the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. Hi, Dave. How are you? Hey, I'm doing okay. You know, that's, uh, August is kind of wrapped up. Now we're looking to September and hopefully some changes, and maybe I'll be back in Boston to do some genealogy. That'd be great. <laughs> well, it would be nice to get out and go anywhere, wouldn't it? But being yeah, stuck inside... Yeah. Uh, I've had some really good success here this last week. I found information on my brother, my half-brother actually, technically, who passed away in 1963. He was 21 years old. Yeah, it was a gallbladder surgery that went bad. It was pretty miserable. And I found that his hometown newspaper, he lived with his mom in New Jersey, they finally digitized it. And I found a bunch of stories that mention him, including one that has a picture of him working on bicycles that people had thrown away that he was fixing up to take care of disadvantaged children and it was really a cool thing to see and it was really interesting stuff and then the other one was i found that i had an ancestor who was in the revolution who was stationed at Mm -hmm. what they called fort arnold this was the main fort up at west point Mm -hmm. right where they had the jog in the river and they put the chain across he may have actually been involved in the construction of that fort the very one that benedict arnold tried to give to the british Crazy, huh? You never know. uh, (laughs) You're six degrees from Kevin Bacon. Now you have a closer six degrees with Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold himself, exactly. (laughs) Alexander Hamilton would be more fun. Well, I'll tell you, you never know what you're going to find when you're walking around. And, you know, you might find a $20 bill or you might find a 117-year-old family Bible that belonged to a World War I soldier. This is what happened in Toronto, Canada. Wow. When someone was walking around an urban area. And down on the ground was a pocket Bible, and he tracked down the family and (laughs) returned it to them. 
Isn't that cool? Yeah, they actually went through and did social media posts. The uh, Toronto newspaper there picked up on it, and he was actually able to find mm-hmm. the great-grandchild, I believe, of the soldier and returned it to the family, and they're all just thrilled. The one guy's thrilled to death that he was able to track down the family, and the family can't believe they own this Bible with a notation in there from great-grandpa to great-grandma. How cool is that? That really is. And when would you ever think that something like that would just kind of show <laughs> up? It makes you think, where was it? Does it fell out of somebody's pocket? I'm glad it didn't get rained on. <laughs> the family says they view it as a gift from God, and who can argue with that? You really can't. The next story that we have is about a teacher who's been going around to use bookstores, like many of us do, but she's looking for the ephemera inside, like love letters and photographs and trying to connect them. This is great detective work, and she takes photographs of all the mementos she's found. And and some of these letters go back generations, and so she's trying to find the next of kin. I think that's incredible. It's almost like dead Fred for stuff in books. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you're right. Well, you know, people claim that, you know, oh, the Vikings were here in America at a certain point in time, but... I never thought of the Vikings in Istanbul, Turkey, and now what they're saying that they've located the village that was created between the 8th and the 11th centuries of Vikings in wow. Turkey in Istanbul. Istanbul, and, Turkey, uh, yeah. Vikings. I can't picture that. Crazy. Well, their trade and plundering <laughs> yeah. went more than just to, say, Ireland or Scotland or England or, you know, even into continental Europe. It obviously has gone all the way to Turkey. Incredible. So there you go. And then you just never know how stupid people can be. Um, (laughs) You know, I always encourage people to do DNA tests. But if you have a criminal background, you might not want to test your own DNA. Yep, this is what happened to a convicted sex offender who now faces charges from assaults dating back to 1980, 74 years old. And, you know, it's a really good point to say that he was looking for his past, but now he knows his future. Yes, he not only knows where he's from, but he knows where he's going. Mm -hmm. Incredible. That is true. Well, I just came back from my vacation in New Hampshire where we went to places I went to when I was three and five years old. And I drove my family crazy, recreating the same angle and the same photo that was taken with me and my grandmother or my mother and I and my dad back in the early 1970s. But now that I've compared the two of them, it's kind of fun and the kids got bigger kick out of it. But no, 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 a little more to the left, a little more to the right. <laughs> they were getting quite aggravated as I try to recreate history, my own. I hope so. you uh, post some of those back then and now. I think that'd be really fun to see. I'll send you a link to them. I got them on my Twitter account on DL Genealogist. All right. Very nice, David. And thank you very much. David's going to be back at the back end of the show as we do Ask Us Anything. And on the line with me today is my good friend, Kitty Cooper. She is a DNA specialist somewhere out there on the West Coast. How are you, Kitty? Great to have you back. I'm fine, and there are no fires here in San Diego yet, knock on wood. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know, Kitty, you are always a great source of information to me when I run into some issues, and, and also a great guest to have on the show because you can educate us on a lot of things. One area that I haven't spoken with anybody about on the show lately, among the changes that are happening at Ancestry.com, is this whole thing about Ancestry now giving you the longest segment that you share with somebody among the matches. Can you explain to all of us why that's an important thing? 
Yes. Think of it this way. When your DNA recombines, it recombines in big chunks. And then the next generation, it recombines some more and some more and some more. And as you go down the line, those chunks get smaller. Mm -hmm. So if you share a large chunk, you're going to be more closely related than to someone who you share only small chunks. So a simple way to look at this is sometimes I have, if you have endogamy, and I have a Jewish grandfather, so I have a lot of matches that just aren't real matches. Now, Ancestry does a pretty good job of removing what it calls population-specific centimorgans. So I get good matches from them, but not from other companies so much. Well, let's explain just for a minute for those people who aren't familiar with the term endogamy what that means. It means my ancestors' cousins married each other, and they did it generation after generation. And maybe they didn't know there were second cousins, but it was okay. It was a small community, and you know there weren't enough marriage partners to go around. I mean, sometimes they would try to import brides from a neighboring town, but these small Jewish communities were very insular. Someone did a study that said all of us Northern European Jews were descended from 350 people in about 1,300. Oh, wow. Yeah. So as a result, it looks like you're more closely related to people than you really are. But that's And it even happens in my Norwegians. I had a case really? of someone who came up as a third cousin to my father, and it turned out they were twice a fifth cousin and once a sixth cousin, and their grandparents were first cousins, which also made them have more DNA with us. The so, largest segment was smallish, like 13. Okay. I expect to see a large, largest segment. For me, for Jewish matches, somewhere between 20 and 30, it better be at least that big, or they're not recently related. For <laughs> Jewish matches, for the ancestor to be findable, you need one segment greater than 20, one greater than 10, and like five or six more. But on ancestry, you're just getting the largest segment. Okay. So you'd really like to have a largest segment that's greater than 20. You know, 30 would be even better. But greater than 20 is a close enough relative to find the relationship. Less than that, probably not so. You're so, going to share multiple ancestors with someone who's from an endogamous population. Sure. So at what level of relationship does the length of the segment matter, for instance, is it a different number that you'd like to see for, say, a second cousin than for a fourth cousin? Well, you know, like I share with my brother, my largest segment is 173. With my first cousins, my largest segments are over 100 in most cases, 63 in one case. With my second cousins, I can share anywhere from, oh, 70 to 40 as okay. my largest segment. Okay. Now getting down to third cousins, it starts to drop down. Here's a third cousin. My largest segment is 100. So what does yeah, that suggest that, to you? That she really is my third cousin. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. It's good and, DNA. And this, what can I know, say? You know, this I, sounds, I like, this sounds like, oh, like a Frankenstein project, right? A little from here, a little from there. Put it all together and you've got this assembled creature that really isn't your first cousin, but a combination of fifth, sixth, third, fourth. Right? right, all of those so things. You won't have you won't have a largest segment of a hundred when it's really a fifth cousin three times over. Okay, <laughs> your largest segment will be around thirteen. You know, and so that's how you know it probably isn't as close a match as it looks. Now I'm just looking down the line. I wrote all the longest segments in the notes, and I see a group of three people 
who are all my third cousins, all having 100 for their largest. So it looks like there was just a chunk from those great-great-grandparents that came down to me and to them and somehow did not get recombined. But I'd say that's unusual. 40 is what I expect. 33, 40 is what I expect for a third cousin I match. But I can see I have a number where I have 90, 92. You can share nothing with a third cousin. But when you do share, you tend to have a large, larger segment. So would you suggest, Kitty, that this would be a good exercise for people to do now that the longest segment is available among the Ancestry.com DNA matches to go through and just kind of get familiar with what that segment means at various relationships? Absolutely. I have tons of cousins who've tested, perhaps because I'm a DNA expert. They consider it a privilege to be part of my project <laughs> or my study of our family DNA. Right. You wouldn't believe how many of my cousins have tested. People ask me, how do you get them to test? I say, well, I ask them. Yeah. No, I, I promise them a family tree. I'll do their family tree. Of course, I've already done most of it. Um, right. If, if they'll test for me, because it, I'm just fascinated by this. Totally fascinated. Just scrolling down, I've written the largest segment in the notes because they don't put it on the top page like they do the total. Right. You have to actually go to the profile of your match to see what that largest segment is. Okay. Now, here is my real-life Jewish third cousin, and Ancestry has taken away a certain amount of the DNA because it's population-specific, but she, like me, has one Jewish grandparent, and... That Jewish grandparent happens to be the grandchild of our common ancestors. Okay. And her largest segment is 25. So that's right in line. That's right in line with what I said for your Jewish relatives. Okay. So this kind of ties in also, I would imagine, on the other end with Ancestry raising their minimum Cinnamorgan match number from six to eight. So we're losing the short ones at the bottom end. And I can imagine because of that, you're not too unhappy about that. No, because for me, those small segments are mainly useless endogamous matches that aren't real. One thing I have suggested to a number of people who seem to care about this is to use the common ancestors filter and just star all the people who are at the low match level and know if they're interesting. But just because it thinks you have a common ancestor at six centimorgans, that doesn't mean you got that six centimorgans from that ancestor. There were so many people back then, and particularly colonial Americans were a bit endogamous too. Sure. Uh, I don't generally look at people that even share that little with me. I don't look at people who share only one segment with me because one segment can be very old. It can be from so long ago that it's useless. It doesn't have to even be from the ancestor they've assigned it to. So I personally have not pursued batches that are a single segment unless they're a known relative. I don't even go below 10, you know, that's mine. <laughs> so I was just going to say, is t- that's your cutoff is 10? And, and more than one like, segment? Yeah. So I like a largest segment of 10 and more than one segment and, uh, you know, total around 20 before I'll look. Okay. But if if there's, you know, if Ancestry's found a common ancestor, I'll look at it. You know, it claims this fellow with seven centimorgans is my seventh cousin, maybe. <laughs> but sure. maybe, you know, maybe. <laughs> but it's not as interesting to me as figuring out my own ancestry and my relatives. And I understand some people are upset about, you know, anytime something is taken away, sure, you want to complain. Yeah. But 
I think for me, what's being taken away is totally useless. Well, and in, and in my, my research, in my recent conversations, the, the comments were that this is about the range that all the companies are at around eight centimorgans. So right. they're really kind of all in the same line here. And uh, I guess if you had a lot of people who actually had a common ancestor match and you're trying to prove something, I have a few of those. I think we all do. But that's not really DNA proof. Uh, no. When it's that far back, it can be helpful potentially, especially if you can't find anywhere else that that match might be coming from, to at least see that maybe your paper trail is correct, so you just kind of save it. I think the only practical way to deal with it, because there can be, what, tens of thousands of matches, is just to save the ones you have the common ancestors with and move on from that. Right. So that's what I've suggested to many people who've asked me is, you know, click your common ancestors filter and then click the uh, click the shared DNA and look at the six to eight group and see if there's anything you want to save. If it's starred or grouped, if you put a star next to it or give it a colored dot, it will be saved. Yeah. And that's it. But for the most part, those, those matches may not be accurate. They're not, for my own research, I don't find them useful. Now, I do see that sometimes when someone is on ancestry and they have very few matches because they're foreign or their one parent is foreign, that sometimes those matches can point us in a direction. But I don't recall ever really having used such small matches for much of anything. Maybe I had one difficult case where some of them may have helped point to her fifth grandparents, but yeah, but for, for all part, for all the trouble it causes, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, and the thing it's is, not it's, worth you know, ancestry gotten kind of slow, and if this speeds things up, I'll be thrilled. That makes a lot of sense. I'm talking to Kitty Cooper. She's the DNA specialist based out of San Diego, California. And uh, today, Kitty, we're going to start a new thing among our experts in family history around the country that we have as regular guests on the show. My greatest find. And we want to hear about your greatest find within your own family and how you did it. And uh, Kitty, what has been the greatest find in your family line? The one that just made you feel like, oh my gosh, I did it. How did you do it? And what was the story? Well, I have many great finds, but I think my greatest find was my great-great-grandfather, Lars Monson who was a sailor who jumped ship and married a local girl in the south of Norway. Kristiansand is the south of Norway. They have balmy weather there compared to the rest of the country. And it used to be a major port. But all he said is he was from Bergen. And you may think the name Lars Monson is unusual. <laughs> no. But in fact, there were 10 of them born about the period he said he was born in when you when we looked at the censuses for Bergen. Now, which uh, what time period was he born? He claimed to have been born around uh, 1790, but that wasn't quite right, of course. He made himself a little older <laughs> uh, to be more distinguished, I think. Of course. And we knew nothing about his family, absolutely nothing. Now, you may think it's not a big deal not to know much about your great-great-grandfather, but when you're a genealogist, I had this chart with all of these long lines going out, and that one stopped. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's not good. By way of explanation, I, I wasn't really a genealogist yet. It was just kind of a hobby, 
And luckily for me, since back in the 90s, we had fast internet at the office. So I would spend lunchtime <laughs> searching online doing genealogy. But luckily, my big boss was also into genealogy. So she never got upset when she came by my <laughs> workstation and saw me on these message boards, which is how we did things back then. That, that's an aside. But when I retired, I could finally focus on genealogy. And this was a puzzle that just eluded me. However, there was this thing called DNA. And I had my dad take a Y DNA test for me because Y DNA comes from father to son to son to son to son. Yep. So I figured I might be able to find out which Lars Monson of those 10 was his. But this was a by... while ago, Kitty. I mean, Y DNA was about all there was in the beginning, yeah, right? Yeah, this was in like 2010, 2011 yeah. when I did this. <laughs> and I knew nothing about DNA other than what I'd been misinformed about in school. Sure. <laughs> um, for me, it was just a tool to solve a puzzle. Little did I know that DNA would become my passion, that using DNA and genealogy would explode the way it has. But for a, a male line, for a surname line, now, do understand in Norway the fact that his name was Lars Monson and my maiden name is Monson doesn't mean his father was Munson. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> his father was actually Mons Larsen. Sure, of course. <laughs> as it turned out. Yeah. <laughs> but Norway didn't have surnames back then. You were called by your parents. Sure. And... I've got second great grandparents who are Norwegian also. It's a mess <laughs> back over well, there. Well, it, it's easy once you get used to it. Sure. Because they're naming patterns within families. Right. Okay. You, you usually called your oldest son when you were a man for your father. So that way you kind of know what the father's name was. And so if you look at the names of the children, the patterns can tell you which of the many possibilities are the grandparents. Sure. Yeah. So it's really kind of a lot of fun once you get the hang of it. But I didn't know that back then. I didn't know about <laughs> naming patterns. I knew very little, but I did know that Y could solve this for me. So I did a 12-marker test. Now, let me tell you, that was nothing. I didn't know it was nothing. My it's dad still had 5,000 matches. How many? <laughs> 5,000. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Perfect matches at 12 markers. Mm -hmm. So those days, there was a public website where you could upload the Y and look for matches there that might have been tested at other companies, and it included geographic information. So I looked to see which other 12 marker matches were from <laughs> Bergen, Norway. And there were two of them. You know, and, you know what I love about this, though, Kitty, is the fact that this is how we learn, right? I mean, you are driving blind and you don't even know it. So you just try things to see what happens, right? And somehow in the process of all this, most of us make something happen and we don't even know what we did. Well, I learned so much from trying things out and from yeah. my mistakes and so on. So I wrote to the two Bergen matches, and one of them actually wrote me back. Cool. How rare is that? And it turns out he was a genealogist who lived in Norway and was really interested in all this stuff. So he posted the details of what I knew about my great-great-grandfather on an all-Norwegian website, and he narrowed those 10 people down to two. Well, that was useful. Yeah. Meanwhile, we upgraded to 37 markers, and Sigmund wasn't a match anymore, so that was sort of sad. <laughs> there but we he went. was still helping me, and he, listen to this, he tracked down the male line descendant of the grandfather of one of the two possible Lars Monsons. Oh, wow. And talked him into testing 
And he had a spare 37 kit in the house he'd gotten on sale. He sent it to this gentleman, got the gentleman to test. And naturally, I paid him back for that. And they were a match at 37. They were a three-step match. And so now you knew which Lars so now Munson I knew was yours. which Lars Munson was mine. And now I had his family back another 200 years. Holy because cow. The, the records are reasonable. So he came from a little farm north of Bergen called Ostweit. I went there. It's now a golf course. <laughs> <laughs> I think that'd be a great fate for a lot of farms. You know, they're beautiful. Oh, it was so beautiful there. When my cousin Corinne and I arrived at the Bergen Airport, Sigmund met us at the airport. and He was just marvelous. You know, I will say this. I mean, in all the years I've been doing this, and it's been almost 40 years now, you just run into so many incredibly kind people who are excited about the adventure and want to be part of it with you. And I think vice versa. I think we all kind of get the fever as a result of that and love helping other people make their discoveries. Yeah, I'm afraid I have that. (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, he then texted me when he was in the States. He was at the yearly family tree DNA thing. And he said, oh, you're famous. (laughs) Your name is on the screen. (laughs) (laughs) And he did all this helping, you know, back when I knew nothing and was a novice. Yeah. And he's the one who really kind of got you on the track. And I would imagine he got you kind of hooked on this stuff because it worked. Yeah. He knew a great deal about why. And I knew nothing back then. I just about knew how to do some Norwegian genealogy. Now, have you figured out why he jumped off the ship? Oh, he met a girl. Oh, yeah. That'll happen. Yeah. My great great grandfather met a girl in, in Farsund and we actually found the marriage record. But the thing to know is on the marriage record he's Lars Mogensen. Names are really not as firm back then. Right, as very they are fluid, now. yeah. Very fluid. So Mogensen, that may have been what the clerk heard. Mogens is another way to say Mons. And oh, in fact, Sigmund then put me in touch with a guy in Norway. They have these local history books, and people write the history of all the, the farms farm. In yeah, the, area. the farm books are fabulous. And so Sigmund put me in touch with a guy who wrote the farm book from Ostvite, which is just north of Bergen, from that area. And he then sent me translated copies of the farm book <laughs> entries and commuted. I mean, he was just so helpful, the fellow who wrote that book, which, by the way, is in the Salt Lake City Library now. It wasn't at the time. Kenneth Brout, I think was his name. It was just newly out, that particular area. Each little parish or group of parishes, some local historian takes on the task of writing the history of all the farms with full genealogies. Yes. Yeah, it's fabulous stuff. And I've used it myself on on my lines. Kitty Cooper, what a great way to kick this whole thing off. My greatest story from the great genealogists of our country right now. Thanks so much for coming on and uh, starting us off. I loved it. It was great. How I got hooked on DNA. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly it. And David Allen Lambert is back, the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. And David Aaron writes from Lake Minnetonka in Minnesota and says, guys, I'm new to genealogy and I live in a house that was built in 1875. Is there some way for me to learn about who lived here and the history of the home? David, you've done stuff like this. Oh, yeah. I mean, I live in a house that was built in the 1890s, and I wanted to know, you know, I was finding old bottles in the backyard. I wanted to know who put that trash there. Not that I wanted to, you know, give them grief. I wanted to know who they were. I started basically by looking at the family deed because it told me who we purchased it from. And then 
I went to the Registry of Deeds, as I would advise our listener to, and then backwards trace your own property. So you have on your deed, it will say, this is the same property as conveyed to the grantor, the person that you bought it from, on a date, maybe a volume and a page. So just look up that deed and continually go back and back. The one thing you have to be a little concerned about is that the property itself is going to be deeded, but it may just say buildings on the property. So you may not find exactly the year your house is built or confirmed at least. Now, there's other things you can do. I mean, there's obviously with genealogy, you now get some of these names from the deeds. They're not going to list the kids. So look at the census records. Right. Go to local historical societies and see if they have old photographs of the neighborhood or even the house you live in, especially since it's an older house. You might want to research the local vital records. Find where the people who lived in your house, maybe there's a nearby cemetery and they're buried there. Or who knows, may even be buried in your backyard. Ooh, <laughs> one thought too, David, and I've done this before with great success, and that is go to a newspaper, a digitized newspaper site, and just put in the address and the town and see what stories come up about things that happened at that address. That's true. And just keep in mind that the address number of your street may have changed. So all of a sudden, if it doesn't make sense, just see what the local historical society or maybe the town assessor's office, if they ever renumbered the street. But I would say that it would be really easy to take this project on, involve your whole family, and trace the genealogy of your homestead. Now, what did you find out about your house, Dave? I mean, it's pretty old. It's like you say, your family hasn't owned it the entire time, have they? No. In fact, on the record of the town, it says my house was built in 1917. The truth of it, it was built in 1897. I've even found newspaper articles, like you were saying, that talk about the house being built. They talk about who built it and where they came from. I know it was built by two Nova Scotia carpenters that lived in Newton, Massachusetts, named Robertson and Stimson. I know that in 1934, the property was then owned for 25 years by a Dr. Charles Henry Gray. He was a doctor in Cambridge and went to Harvard University, owned the first car in the city of Cambridge, and came out here during the influenza epidemic and lived in my house and then eventually bought it. And and when did your family get it? 1965. 1965. So your family's been been in there 55 years? Wow. Yeah, four generations have lived here from my children's great-grandparents right down to my kids. That's a great history, and you've been able to find all that and put all that together. And what about the stuff you found in the backyard? What was back there? It was a medical doctor. Yeah, probably a lot more medical waste than you probably care to think of from the (laughs) 1920s. Medicine bottles, probably a foot thick. Some of them (laughs) broken, but some of them quite whole, and some of them still with corks in them with the medicine in them. So, The nearby stream is probably not the safest thing in the world, but I'm sure it's not a a mass cleanup site either. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. And uh, David, question here from Lauren in Piscataway, New Jersey. And she says, guys, I've been searching digitized newspapers and have had a real head-scratching problem. I can't find my people where they should be. What am I doing wrong? Great question. David, I'll start with this one because I've just been doing this a lot recently. I think part of the mm-hmm. problem might very simply be that she isn't looking for names with various spellings. For instance, I had my half-brother that I mentioned earlier in the show, and I just found this uh, information on him on newspapers.com, and his name was S-T-E-P-H-E-N. 
but he went by Steve, mm-hmm. and the paper sometimes spelled it Stephen, and of course Fisher sometimes has a C in it, and sometimes another thing that happens with these newspaper stories is they divide a name in half, right? They do the first syllable and then a dash, and it doesn't pick it up as easily. So sometimes you want to go in a different direction, try to look at addresses or something they might have been associated with. Well, I know when I've looked at my own family, it's like never assume the spelling of the last name is the way you think it is. I mean, my own last name of Lambert and some early Nova Scotian papers were listed as Lampert because Lambert uh-huh. and Lampert sound a lot alike. Sure. And then you get into the name Fagans. I had an ancestor who did the unfortunate thing to find out how much opium it would take to kill a man, and he killed himself in 1831. It made news from Maine all the way down to Virginia. But every variation on Joseph Fagan's name, any vowel change, add a Y, take out a Y, add an S, take out an S, it's in there. (laughs) But yeah, his name is not consistent. So, And unfortunately, sometimes that even happens with gravestones, because somebody might carve a gravestone and put the wrong name on it. So it's not just an obituary that could be wrong. Isn't that interesting? You know, with newspapers, you know, you can narrow the time frame, which is helpful. And then go through those variant spellings as we've talked about. But you can also, as we've talked about today, go through and look by street address or something like that and see if you can find something connected there. In the case of my half-brother who passed away in 1963, he belonged to a hot rod club. And they did a lot of service around their community in New Jersey, helping stranded motorists get their cars going again. And they would refuse to accept any tips for their service. And so I would Mm -hmm. then start searching for any reference to the club, or I'd put hot rod in quotes. So you don't necessarily always have to look for the name of the individual, but sometimes you're going to look for things that they're associated with. And when you do that, you might surprise yourself. Well, I remember advising somebody in regard to their ancestor who played semi-pro baseball, and they weren't finding Robert Stevenson. I said, have you tried looking for Bob Stevenson or maybe his nickname or better yet, R. period Stevenson or last name Stevenson, the association with the name of the team? And they found more than they had ever found. Isn't that interesting? People are always more familiar in local town papers. So you may be referred to as Mr. Fisher or I might be Mr. Lambert. And they don't even say who our first name is because, well, we know who Mr. Fisher is in small <laughs> town in New Hampshire. Or their initials, right, David? I mean, they, they could put D.A. Oh, Lambert yeah. or W.S. Fisher, something like that. And that can throw people off. And then you got to change the spellings of the last names all over again and hopefully oh, yeah. get it right. So there are a few tips. Hopefully that helps you find what you're looking for. So good luck on that. Let us know if you make any breakthroughs. And by the way, if you have any questions for Ask Us Anything, you can always email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. Thanks, David. Talk to you again next week. Take care. Talk to you again next week. Thanks for joining us. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.